In 2022, pitcher Max Scherzer secured a deal worth $43,333,333 per year. Now, for a moment, let's ignore the $43 million, and let's just focus on that $3,000 at the end, because that measly, seemingly insignificant $3,000, that .0007% of Scherzer's entire salary, is still more money than Fergus Malone made in 1874, when Malone was the highest paid professional baseball player in the country at $2,800. But this, as usual, is not the whole story. In today's show, we'll examine baseball salaries, how they've changed, and the human stories behind them, including the juggernaut of baseball salaries, Babe Ruth, and how a man named Christy Walsh helped turn Ruth's baseball fame into a financial windfall. Also, for the first time in 150 years, Players have found a way around the quote-unquote big leagues or bust financial model. They found a way to make money even if they never make it to the show. You're listening to the Midnight Library of Baseball, where there are no loud noises, no jarring music, only nostalgic thought-provoking, emotional stories about baseball. I'm Ben Orlando. When I think of the origins of professional baseball in the United States, I think of men in tattered uniforms, traveling from town to town on trains and buses, staying in cheap hotels or sleeping on couches, begging for meals between games. This was the reality for many, and still is the reality for some. But it wasn't the reality for all, even in the beginning. Also, buses weren't invented until 1920. Fergus, or Fergie Malone, was 30 years old in 1874 when he was paid $2,800. This was no fortune compared to Max Scherzer's salary, but it was also not nothing. Considering inflation, $2,800 in 1874 was equivalent to $75,000 today. Also, consider the fact that Malone played only 47 games in 1874. If you triple his salary to equal triple the number of games today, Malone would have made more than $200,000. It's hard to compare schedules and numbers of games, because in the late 1800s, schedules were erratic, as were the leagues. From 1879 to 1891, the leagues moved from 80 games to 140, and in 1892 they switched to 154-game schedule, only eight games shy of today's modern schedule. And in 1892, the highest salary went to Joe Gunson, who was paid, like Malone, $2,800. Except in 1892, $2,800 was equal to almost $95,000 in today's economy. The whole concept of a professional, paid baseball player was prohibited throughout the 19th century, as gentlemen in baseball clubs did not want to bring money into the game. 
1857, 16 clubs met in New York City and formed the National Association of Baseball Players, or NABBP. And the NABBP prohibited professional or paid baseball, with the risk of being banned from the game for taking money to play. We often recognize the 1869 Cincinnati Red Stockings as the first professional team, but according to author Peter Morris, this idea is completely untrue. By the end of the 1850s, baseball clubs were blatantly recruiting the best players, and there are records of various players moving to different cities to play on different clubs. There are no outright logs before 1869 of teams paying players to play baseball, but Peter Morris did a great job of detective work to assemble the truth. Morris found that players were moving themselves and their families to different cities and towns, and it really wouldn't make sense to uproot your life unless there was a financial incentive to do so. And while it was illegal for teams to overtly pay ballplayers, they found other ways to compensate them. According to one source, a player named Al Reach was recruited by the Philadelphia Athletics in 1865. And while Reach was not paid for his baseball skills, he was, quote, set up in a cigar shop on the south side with a $1,200 salary and nothing to do, end quote. There's another account of the National Club of Washington luring players from New York with promises of promotions in the Treasury Department. So on the surface, it's illegal to pay baseball players. But a few inches down, you have all these players with token jobs and a lot of winking going on. Another way players were making money at the time was through admission fees. Except there was a glaring problem with this system. Baseball fields in the 1850s and 60s were not enclosed. You had nothing resembling stadiums of today, so it was very difficult to properly collect fees when people could walk onto the field from any direction. But as baseball grew, fences went up, fees increased, and owners took more and more of the share. Definitely by the 1870s, baseball players were being paid to be baseball players, and fans were more readily accepting the idea of paying a fee to watch a game. Little by little, the concept of strolling onto an open field, sitting along the sideline grass to watch a game, changes. First you have a fence, then fences on all sides, then walls, until, without even realizing it, you are now walking into a building that contains a field. Something rarely seen since the days of the Roman amphitheater or Colosseum, thousands of years earlier. In the 1880s, Due to bidding wars between teams, there were several dozen players making several thousand dollars, but again, these were the best of the best, the elite few. What about the rest? If we jump to 1920, we have records on the average salary for a Major League Baseball player, which was $3,877, equal to just under 60000 today. So, not peanuts but not fantastic. 1920 also marked the first year of Babe Ruth's contract with the New York Yankees. That year, Ruth shared the highest salary in the league with Ty Cobb at $20,000, or $300,000 in today's money. 
The next year, Cobb passed Ruth when he earned $25,000. But Ruth soared back into the lead in 1923 when he earned a salary of $52,000, besting Cobb by 15000 For the rest of his career, until 1934, Ruth would continue to be paid the most of any other baseball player in the major leagues. And in 1927, with an increase to $70,000, Ruth finally became, at least in today's economy, a millionaire. But beyond the major leagues, Ruth's story answers a lot of questions about baseball players and how they made a living in the early days of the game. In 2021, Michael Halpert published a fantastic article in the Baseball Research Journal titled, The Business of Being the Babe. In his article, Halpert describes with words, tables, and graphs all the many ways Babe Ruth made money. And a large part of his revenue stream was due to an agent named Christy Walsh. With the help of Walsh, Babe Ruth showed other baseball players and athletes what was possible in this place and time. According to Halpert, there are two origin stories for the meeting of Christy Walsh and Babe Ruth. In one story, Christy Walsh climbs a fire escape and enters Babe Ruth's hotel room while Ruth is having sex with a woman. Walsh slaps Ruth on Babe's bare butt and shouts, Babe, I want to represent you. The second story has Walsh staking out Ruth's favorite deli. Walsh somehow stands in for the usual delivery boy, and in this way he gains access to Ruth's apartment. He brings Ruth a barrel of beer and convinces him that together they will make a whole lot of money. Whatever the real story, Walsh and Ruth worked together until well after the end of Ruth's career. And surprisingly, their first venture together involved ghostwriting. At the time, Christy Walsh had two companies, one as a sports agent and one company specifically focused on ghostwriting stories for celebrity athletes. In this venture alone, over the course of his career, Babe Ruth made $157,000, or $3.3 million in today's economy. So where else did Babe Ruth make his money? The better question might be, where didn't he? According to Halpert, Christy Walsh ran his business based on the motto of Rod Tidwell from Jerry Maguire, show me the money. In other words, wherever there was an opportunity to make a dime, Walsh sent it to Babe Ruth, and usually Babe Ruth accepted. Ruth sold sporting goods. He sold knives. He sold pens. His longest contract was for an underwear company. He was a spokesman for Benrest Watches, Esso Oil, Quaker Oats, and a slew of other products. One of Walsh's early ideas was to create a pension fund for Ruth, so Ruth would have money after he retired. Ruth, it turns out, was against the idea. He wanted to live large, spending every dime and not worrying about the future. But Walsh had his way and managed to put away a few thousand a year. And in the end, Ruth was grateful for Walsh's foresight, as the Sultan of Swat managed to run through most of his fortune by the end of his career. In all areas of his life, Babe Ruth lived to excess. Even with his enormous salary, Ruth continued to play for money in the off-season, appearing in hundreds of barnstorming or exhibition games throughout his career, 
netting him approximately 94000 by the end. He also starred in movies, television shows, and radio programs. All in all, Ruth cleared, in today's terms, close to $30 million. But despite Babe Ruth's enormous financial success, and despite the fact that over the course of his career, his salary represented 25% of the Yankees' total expenditures, he would not have been close to the incomes earned by today's players. There are two main reasons for this eventual seismic shift. First, in Babe Ruth's day, baseball teams made their money mostly from ticket sales. Over time, teams began to make significant revenue from concession stands, luxury boxes, parking, and advertising inside the stadium, as well as the stadium itself. In Babe Ruth's day, you had stadiums named for the teams or owners. Today, you have Citizens Bank Park, Minute Maid Field, Petco Park, T-Mobile Park, and for the Chicago White Sox, Guaranteed Rate Field. But the largest revenue enhancer by far was television contracts. These revenue streams made it possible to shell out huge salaries across the board. But huge salaries would not have been shelled out to the players if not for one final seismic change. Free agency. For many people, it might be hard to believe, but in Babe Ruth's time, there was no free agency. Since 1879, something called the Reserve Clause, or Reserve Rule, prohibited players from changing teams, unless owners wished it to happen. If players tried to break their contracts, they'd be put on a blacklist, and no one would hire them. And from time to time, this happened. For Babe Ruth, as great as he was, this meant if he didn't want to play for the Yankees, he wouldn't be able to play for anyone. He would have to find a new profession because no other team would hire him. Considering this rules, players lacked any leverage, and salaries remained stagnant. And most players were not as fortunate or skilled as Babe Ruth. The average salary in 1920, equal to $60,000 today, remained in this area of good but not great until the 1970s. And you had players with expenses and families to support who needed more. Many major league players, even superstars, took off-season jobs to augment their income. In her article on this topic, Lauren Cantor described many examples that seem outlandish by today's standards. In 1966, Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Palmer won the World Series with the Orioles, and Palmer pitched a shutout during that World Series. But his $7,500 salary was not enough. And soon after the World Series, Palmer was selling men's suits to support his family. As Lauren Cantor goes on to write, quote, in 1906, Chicago Cubs pitcher Mordecai Threefinger Brown won 26 games, and he took a coal mining job at season's end to help pay his bills. Fellow All-Star Christy Mathewson pumped gas at a service station. Walter Johnson dug post holes for the Idaho Telephone Company, while Lefty Gomez removed sludge from refinery tanks for Union Oil. Pittsburgh Pirates shortstop Honus Wagner founded a circus with his brothers. Opting to avoid animals and rely on clowns and acrobats, the circus was a failure and Wagner went broke. End quote. 
And if you know about baseball history, you know that all the names mentioned above were some of the best players who ever lived. The list goes on. Yogi Berra worked as a hardware salesman at Sears and as a waiter at an Italian restaurant. Stan Musial and Willie Mays sold Christmas trees. Richie Hebner, who played 18 seasons in the major leagues from 1968 to 1985, was a gravedigger in the offseason, and Hebner kept his gravedigging job after he stopped playing baseball. In 1969, nearly a hundred years after the reserve clause came into being, Kurt Flood sued Major League Baseball, citing a violation of antitrust laws. Flood compared the reserve clause to slavery. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, where, in 1972, the court ruled against Flood in a 5-3 vote. Flood, like his predecessors who tried to break free, was blacklisted and never played again. But three years later, in another court case, the reserve clause was finally struck down, allowing Major League players for the first time in a hundred years the freedom to change teams when their contracts expired. This led to massive competition, bidding wars, and a skyrocketing of salaries. In 1972, during the year of Kurt Flood's Supreme Court trial, the highest major league salary was $167,000, paid to Carl Yastrzemski. In 1977, two years after the reserve clause was struck down, the highest salary more than tripled at $560,000, paid to Mike Schmidt. Over the years, the highest salary has continued to climb and jump until it reached $58 million for Max Scherzer in 2023. However, Angels pitcher and hitter Shohei Otani beat everyone in total earnings, as Otani made $30 million from his salary, but $40 million in endorsements. If we look at not the highest salary, but the minimum league salary, we can see an equal rise and spike over the years. The first recording of a minimum salary was in 1967, with a base of $6,000. That's equivalent to $55,000 today. In 2023, the minimum salary for a major league player was $720,000, which is slightly less than what Babe Ruth was making when his salaries towered over everyone in the league. It makes sense today to pay baseball players so much when you consider the revenue streams involved and when you also consider the weeding out process that leaves tens of thousands of hopeful players forever standing outside the door. Like in most professional sports, your enormous salary not only represents your worth, but also the sweat and tears of the people you climbed over to get where you are. Today, the situation is much better for major league players but still rough for minor league players, who average between $4,000 and $14,000 per year. But what's different today is that major league prospects making their way through the minor leagues have an option available to them that did not exist for players 150 years ago, even 20 years ago. It's an option to allow them to hedge their bets and support themselves even if they don't make it to the major leagues. It's called income pooling, and it's catching on. In 2017, a company named Pando was formed by two Stanford graduates, Charlie Olson and Eric Lax. 
Their goal was to convince minor league baseball players to form income pooling groups, which means this. You form a group of two or more players. When one of those players makes it to the major leagues and earns $1.6 million, 10% of that income will kick back to the pooling group, meaning everyone in the group gets a share of that 10%. And they will keep paying until an agreed-upon cap is reached or the player retires. And Pando only makes money by taking a cut if a player in the pool reaches the $1.6 million mark. So in this system, there doesn't seem to be a downside. If nobody in the pool makes it big, nobody pays anything. But if one or more players do make it, this means they're going to make a lot of money, and a small fraction of that money will kick back to teammates and friends, so those friends can continue to play the game they love, and they can continue to hope. And again, there's no charge to Pando unless somebody makes it. But in Planet Money interview, Pando founder Charlie Olson hit an unexpected snag. When pitching this option to minor league players, Olson came up against a necessary component of the baseball prospect, his ego. Some players saw the income pool as a way of saying, I don't believe in myself if I take part in this pool. And to reach the major leagues, I have to believe in myself 100%. But Olson had a reply. He asked these players, does your agent believe in you? Of course, they said. Okay, Olson replied. If that's the case, why does your agent have more than one client? If your agent believes in you and believes you're going to make it, then they could earn plenty on just your success. In other words, Olson said, there's no guarantee. Even if you believe in yourself and you are good enough to make it, you still might not make it. And so why not have a backup plan? To date, Pando has signed several hundred players, and there are a few other similar startups out there. And while some of the participants have signed major league contracts, no one has yet paid out. At least not that I've found. If you know differently, please let me know. That's the show. You can find the podcast at my website, midnightlibraryofbaseball.com, and you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and a variety of other platforms. You can also find me on Instagram at Midnight Library of Baseball and on Facebook. The music is A Long Way by Sergi Pavkin at Pixabay. Good night.